Hey everybody, welcome to Don't Sit in the Front. This week I am talking with Mandy Johnson. She's the photographer and editor who put together a really amazing book called Super Serious, an oral history of Los Angeles independent stand-up comedy. You can get the book uh, most places that books are sold online. Along with Joel Mandelkorn, Mandy Johnson produced the, the Super Serious show. Uh, they started the show in the summer of 2010. The book came out in the summer of 2020, maybe the late summer of 2020, just as I and many people were really starting to feel the loss of... Uh, we hadn't had live stand-up comedy for months, and I had the idea to start this show, and then one of the first things I did that really kind of inspired me to get it going uh, was I picked up this book, uh, giving you a timeline and wonderful oral history of alternative or independent stand-up comedy in Los Angeles. Uh, and then it's complete with Mandy's photographs. Uh, she photographed all the people that performed on the Super Serious show. Uh, some of my favorite parts of the book are interviews with people like Dana Gould, Andy Kindler, Karen Kilgareth, uh, really giving you the longer history of alternative stand-up comedy in Los Angeles, and then hearing from people who were performing on that show in the 2010s. So I'll give uh, links and information to order the book. It's one of my, it made my list of favorite books in 2020. It's really a must for fans of stand-up comedy and uh, it's just a really nice coffee table book, beautiful photographs. Uh, so I'll give information to order the book. It's really great. It's reasonably priced. Uh, it's really a must for stand-up fans. And I hope you enjoy my interview with Mandy Johnson. But Mandy, so uh, asking people how they are right now is like a weird question, but I just, I am sort of like, what does, what does life look like for you here in the first week of 2021? What are you up to? Um, and kind of also, how are you? Uh, good and bad. <laughs> yeah, it's fair. It's fair. Um, asking how you are right now. I still don't know how to start emails. Like that's how I always used to start emails. Like, hope you're doing well. And it feels yeah. it that feels like a weird thing to also still do, um, but uh, I think I'm fine. Look, we're we have a comfortable and in, in the large scheme of things, we have a comfortable apartment um, that we have still managed to pay rent for, even though we've barely worked in the past year. Um, yeah, and we have food, and we're safe, and we don't have COVID. So as a whole, right. in the pandemic, I feel like you know we're still really nailing it. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I think that this is the year where things start to get really interesting for us, um, yeah. on a financial level, you know, like we kind of mm -hmm. went through everything that we had saved, um, right. in 2020. Cause you're a, cause you're a photographer, you were producing shows, uh, you put out your book, uh, but is your, what's your main, well, your main gig was photography or that's like yeah, one of the many would, things you Yeah, do? that's one of the main things. I would say that that's my main source of income is photography stuff and then um we also do uh production work so we do physical production sometimes so we do production services 
Um, and then other times, and we also do um, development work. And so mm-hmm. the other thing that we've been working on during the pandemic, which helped a lot last year, was we had sold, like two or three years ago, we sold an audio show that Joel, my partner, and I co-created to Audible. And oh, wow. it had, you know, there was writing, there was development, there was writing, Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was and but we kind of got the green light to start moving forward with actual production like in April. And so like in June, we cast mm-hmm. it and we recorded it in September. And oh, so wow. we're in post on that now. And so that's keeping us fairly busy. Um, which is, is it which sort is of in the realm of like documentary type thing or is it it's it's not, fiction? It's totally fiction. Wow. It's a it's a um, um, it's about a teenage girl who becomes a medium and her parents mm. think she's having a mental break from reality and move her from New York mm. City to upstate New York to a made-up town called Dudestad, New York, um, mm. and accidentally move her into her house with five ghosts. Ooh. So is it so kind of in the... You, you didn't really say it was like an audio book, but sort of like sort of a yeah, radio play? it's an play. audio show, yeah. yeah. So Audible is doing Audible Originals, and so yeah. this is one of those Audible Originals, and it's kind of a, it kind of lives between you know, young adult and comedy. So it's funny, mm. um, but it's also, you know, a teenage adventure story, so. Yeah, that's really yeah. cool. So you, um, I'll give it, like I get, I got some of the details from reading uh, the sort of the oral history part of your book and to get some details from there, but for listeners, so you produced uh, the show Super Serious, Uh in Los Angeles. Can you just kind of give us the basic details sure. of when that ran and uh, how you got into that? Sure. Uh, I produce, uh, so how me and my partner Joel got into um, co- the comedy world, so to speak, was with starting the Super Serious Show, which was a monthly show um, that originally started at Smashbox Studios in Culver City. And mm. we would have the host headline the show. Um, mm-hmm. predominantly just because we, at that time in Los Angeles, lineup shows were often like hosted by one of the younger comics who yeah. kind of struggled to say names or was really nervous or, mm-hmm. and I always thought that that was mean to make, th- yeah. to make them do that. I thought it was just, you know, they were already it was like nervous. a hazing ritual that they, yeah, or just because the other comics didn't want to be bothered, which I totally understand if that's not your thing. Um, mm-hmm. but we thought what fun would it be to like build a show around the host headliner and then kind of complement their stylings with other comedians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would always showcase like one director or, you know, directing team or something. And we just show videos. Um, it made it quite difficult to book the host um, mm. because, you know, uh, they would um, or, you know, to book whoever because not everybody wants to do that. But yeah. it was a lot of fun. And that ran for almost 10 years. It would have run for the full 10 if it hadn't been for the pandemic. Uh, Mm -hmm. So July 2020 would have been 10 years. Um, And then I also produce with Joel, we produce Hot Tub with Kurt and Kristen. And so that's a weekly show that's gone on Twitch since the pandemic with Hold the Phone. I mean, we can count it the full 10. I would count it. (laughs) I would call it a full decade. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty close. I mean, we did do like 24 shows in Edinburgh. So maybe we can slide some of those over. Yeah, there's some fills in the back yeah sure. i mean theoretically we'll see when we come out on the other side of this what where we all are physically mm-hmm. emotionally where our venues are where our venues are at um we would love to do you know a small little like goodbye run i think we'd probably call it you know like a three show and done 
We yeah. hadn't really even announced that we were wrapping it up because we were waiting till like the last three months, the last three shows to do that. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so maybe, but but maybe not. But maybe we'll just do one big giant party one day. When did you get the idea to do uh, the book? I think like maybe around year five or so, comedians started asking me like if I was going to do a book with all the photos. and mm. um, And I hadn't like... Not that I hadn't thought about it maybe, but I hadn't really spent any time thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And then it took me a little while to figure out how one makes a book and gets it yeah, published yeah. professionally. Um, mm-hmm. And and then to go through the steps of that, which is like finding an agent and then writing a proposal and then having the proposal go through many, many stages of drafts and, um, and then selling the proposal and then the process of making the book. Um, but I was very lucky. A good friend of mine, Molly, um, introduced me to my book agent, Monica, and she's lovely. And she really believed in the project right away and helped me kind of shape it into what we sold to Andrews McNe- uh, Andrews McMeal, um, mm-hmm. who was so gracious to publish it from an unknown person and uh-huh. just trusted the fact that there were lots of known people in the book. For so. sure. I was telling people like uh, after I got the book, I'm like, this is like almost like flashcards for like who's who in comedy for the 2010s. It's really like, uh, do you, do you find the, do you find the, the title, um, like a coffee table book pejorative or is it like a celebrated category? No, I think it's a coffee table book. It lives on my coffee table. (laughs) Yeah. It has a a proud place on our coffee table as well. And it's just a nice, um, like I said, kind of like flashcards of everybody that I would see going to comedy shows for the time that I've lived in LA because I, I moved here in 2011. So, um, you know, you started super serious just before, and I would see so many of these names and then right up until, uh, comedy kind of went on pause for a little bit. It's really a who's who, but so on top of that for listeners, uh, on top of it being a book of photographs of comedians who were on that show, there's also an oral history component. So then I'm kind of curious because like I'm a PhD student in history and I know that like it's not at all the same sort of thing, but I'm interested in oral history as a concept. So I'm kind of like extra interested in that aspect of it. How did you then go about the process of uh, interviewing and then kind of figuring out what you would, how you would organize that? So I came up with the oral history because while I love the photos and I think, I mean, they're my photos, so of course I love them, but, uh, and I think that they're very fun. I also think that a book of just them would be not as much fun as the book that I Mm. made. I think Mm -hmm. that it would just be a little bit repetitive after a while. Um, Mm -hmm. and maybe not what I really wanted to put out into the world that necessarily represents both sides of me. So I think the oral history part allowed me to kind of represent the part of me that's a producer that's worked with all these comedians for so long and been part of the community in a way that if I was just a photographer who showed up at the backstage of the show every month, I maybe wouldn't have the same experience or the same connections or the same relationships with these comedians. Yeah. Um, So that kind of allowed me to do, to set it apart from other photo books, from other photo books of comedians and Mm -hmm. allow me to make it a little bit more personal to me and my experience through the super serious show. So then I kind of decided to organize the book around what I kind of thought or felt like were the main flagpole things I wanted to talk about. So yeah. 
they're not the book isn't organized where you read everything from Anthony Jeselnik in one go or you read everything yeah. from so and so. It's organized in a way where like I kind of discussed similar topics in a similar mm-hmm. order with every comedian depending on where the conversation took us when we were chatting um, and then pulled the most interesting pieces I thought from each mm-hmm. interview. Um, and I'm sure some of it got, you know, there was a lot of it that got cut. There's like, well, like half of the interviews, you know, that I originally pulled, we cut mm-hmm. for space and stuff. But, um, so I organized it kind of around like how everybody got started because I think that that's an interesting and it's a nice intro into a book. Um, then like what the LA scene was like when they moved here. Um, so to kind of put together a bit of a timeline from, you know, everyone's memories, of rooms and spaces and shows mm-hmm. and things and vibes. Um, and then we talk about like why independent comedy is important. Um, and it's not a comparison to, or an either or of club comedy. It's just discussing mm. the idea was just to discuss why we need both. Like why we can't, yeah. why comedy can't live in a world without independent comedy in it. Mm. And then, um, we talk a little bit about the community, why we all do it. Um, and then just kind of like final words, you know, and, mm-hmm. and stuff. And some of it, so I, I came up with a list. Everyone who's interviewed did or was on Super Serious Show at some point. Uh, so that's the kind of the thread that ties the whole book together. There are some directors. There are some producers. Those are people that helped us out in the show, took photographs, screened videos to give it a little bit more of a bigger picture because there were mm-hmm. a lot of people who helped with the show as a whole. Um. And then I started off with like kind of a small list of people I knew I definitely wanted to talk to. And then sometimes from those interviews, you would you, it would come up and you'd be like, oh, I should talk to so-and-so now, you know, or mm-hmm. I should talk to so-and-so. Um, and so I tried to have an eye towards getting the most interviews that I could in a very small window of time that I had while making sure to try to reach everyone who I thought – had some kind of at least some kind of impact at the very least on the community. So mm-hmm. if they ran a show or if they produced a show or if they just been around for a really long time, you know, like Kindler has been around in Los Angeles since like the seventies, um, yeah. you know, and so that kind of like historical context is really important, you know, juxtaposed with like Dave Ross who ran, who's run shows since like 2010, you know, 2009. Yeah. So like trying to have that historical context of people who've been around a lot, but also to like kind of contrast that with people who came in later. So maybe people who came in in 2011, 2012, 2013, you know, who didn't mm-hmm. maybe have the early aughts, but had kind of there was there were more independent shows when they got here instead of having to see the build up to it. So just trying to, you know, bring in as many voices into the conversations as I could. And I think it ended up being like. It's definitely over like 60 people I talk to, but it might be yeah. even closer to 70. It has a really cool effect the way you said it's not like it's not like this is the interview with Anthony Jeselnik. This is the interview with Dana Gould. It's it's all uh, sort of curated and broken up throughout the book in the kind of timeline that you've described. And I think that gives it a cool effect to kind of see the history and the present and what you're reading. So for I, it's not exactly like this, but for example, the there might be like a full page photograph of like Solomon Giorgio say but you're reading like Andy Kindler on the Mm -hmm. side and kind of seeing like two uh different generations uh in the same sort of image so it has I thought it had a great effect like that 
And then I just love hearing, I think you got such good access to uh, like Karen Kilgariff, Dana Gould, Andy Kindler, really getting that full history of it. Do you feel like you learned a lot in the process of doing this or was it sort of things you had always heard and you just kind of wanted to organize it? I think I learned some stuff. I think you can't have those interviews without learning some things. You know, I think that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Karen's been a friend for years. I've known Dana. Like Dana did one of our first handful of shows at Super Serious Show. And so I think that, you know, you kind of know and you and, you and you know, if you're in this world long enough, you don't want to be a dumb dumb about it, you know, so you, you mm-hmm. kind of pick up stuff. And and I've been watching comedy since 2005 ish. I think, you know, we moved here in 2004 and I think UCB opened up around 2005. And um, so we've been, you know, kind of as a, you know, as a pedestrian part of the world before we started producing. Mm. Um, But I think, you know, you learn certain things you learn. Like I thought that like, I think that maybe the biggest thing I learned was that Largo, I always thought Largo happened on more nights than just Monday because Uh the Largo that I know is its own theater. Mm. And that... Um, and that the booker, the main booker of that show, you know, booked it kind of similar to how a club would book, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I thought that that was very kind of fascinating in a way that as an, I mean, and I get it as our independent room, maybe an easier way to organize your mind space around it was to approach it in a similar capacity. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and so I thought that that was kind of an interesting takeaway. Um, we didn't really, when we came into comedy, we just did whatever we wanted. <laughs> we yeah. know I didn't know how bookers booked at comedy clubs. Uh, I didn't really care how they booked. Um, we just booked who we wanted to book um, and have on our show. What was the thought process like? How did you kind of like manifest that and just be like, okay, I'm gonna go from like you said pedestrian to I'm gonna book a show. I'm gonna produce uh, a show. Joel and his last day job that he had. Um, his boss had a weekly at the Laugh Factory and then very quickly Joel got mm. put in charge of booking it. Um, mm. And so I just went with him all the time because I was already mm-hmm. a fan of comedy and and I hung out backstage and helped, you know, very, you know, very on the edges run the show. And then when he lost that job, which was fine, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, he was like, look, I don't really know what I'm going to do or like what I want to do next, but I know I want to stay in the comedy community and I know I want to start the show and I don't know what it looks like or where we'll do it or anything, but I have the name. Mm. And so we just kind of started from there. Um, and we ended up at Smashbox because, uh, I was a photo producer at the time and knew them well. And, uh, we asked around at lots of different places around town at theaters and bars and we just kept being told no and so yeah we, I asked on like a lark I asked um mm. Dean Rebecca if they would ever consider it and then they said yes so do you what I wonder about what's the hesitancy to have it I guess there's a lot of things that can go wrong with having like a comedy night in some kind of bar type situations but like what do you think was the I just the don't deal? think it was as popular at the time yeah that's kind of what I was getting as like I think it exp- stand-up has exploded again in a different way since 2010 that now they'd probably be like, can you please do something like that here? Yeah. I like to say, I think James quoted it best, maybe James Adomian, where he called it like an, a, an amoeba, you know, like a, a force that just like will grow or contract as needed based on the community. Mm-hmm. And it is true that like comedy is just like a, it's like a, like ivy or something. It'll go wherever it can. 
Yeah. So like if you have a space in a restaurant and somebody thinks they can put an open mic there or a show there, there's nine times out of ten somebody's gonna try to. So there are lots of times I will walk into like new bars and new restaurants and I'll be like, oh no, they have a stage. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. I'll be like, how long until there's a show here? Mm. James Adomian is one of my favorite comics. So I was like, I really like that he pops up so much in the book with, uh, and he has some of the nicest kind of quotes. Like I think, so I, someone shared something, uh, which was the quote that he has, like, I'm not doing this. I'm butchering it, but he's like, I'm not doing stand up to get to something else. Like mm-hmm. I love this and I'm doing it for it, it, it itself. Uh, and I saw that and I was like, I need to know where that is. And then I saw the book was coming out. Um, was just like, uh, I don't have a question off of that. I was just like, that's what, that's how I came to the book. But then, that's so fun. I'm, that's a fun way to come to it. You know, it's, I mean, there were lots of really fun. Sean Patton's interview was, had a lot of really fun quotes. My favorite is mm. when he talks about, he compares like independent comedy and clubs to eating at, in the kitchen at a oh, yeah. fancy restaurant versus eating, you know, in the dining room. Which mm-hmm. obviously the dining room is the club because it's more presentable. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you eat in the kitchen, you might get something that the chef is like experimenting on. So, mm. did you? I'm curious too about your use of the word independent because usually the kind of like potentially false dichotomy that always gets put out there is like alt versus club. And I wonder, did you have to think a lot about the intentional use of the word independent and the, what, no. what do you think it does differently? I don't like, Not really. I don't like labeling it alt comedy. Mm. It's a personal preference. It's comedy. Comedy is comedy. Uh-huh. Um, I think that a better description is where it takes place. So club comedy makes sense because they're in clubs, you know, but mm-hmm. lots of people who are darlings of the independent scene tour and do clubs too, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I think that it's it's more descriptive, accurately descriptive of what is happening at that show. So that typically means that the producers of that show are independent of the venue. Like so even if it's mm. happening on a UCB or something like that, those people don't work for UCB, you know, or they don't mm. work for, you know, I don't work for the Virgil. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, and so it's more descriptive of like what's happening. So I'm an independent producer. And I'm putting on an independent show. I'm doing it of my own free will. Uh, there's, you know, no money in it. So, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, I just find it more accurately describes the comedy than yeah. alt comedy. I feel like it's like all, I mean, alternative is, you know, by essence, trying to say that it's not on the same playing ground maybe to me. as mm. com- And it's just, it's all the same. Like, it's all the same. Uh Like, club comics do independent rooms. Independent comics do clubs. In a perfect ecosystem of comedy, people are doing both. They are doing Mm. independent rooms to try out new material and experiment. They are doing clubs to tour and make money, you know? And so I think that that alt comedy is just a slang that doesn't necessarily describe the scene as I wanted to describe it. And it is Mm. very specifically called independent in my book and not alt. Right. Yeah. It stands out. So did, uh, do you think though that because of the way you're running it and sort of, it's almost like the economic conditions that you just described that it affects how, or what kind of content then is shared through there, or does it affect the content of the comedy because of the place in which it is taking place? Um, I think that comedians as a whole, 
will always feel a little bit more pressure to bring out their shiny good stuff at a club mm-hmm. because people are paying $20 tickets, two item minimum. So you're looking at a $60, you know, cost per person. If they are parents, they've hired a babysitter, you know, right. so now their night is like double. Mm-hmm. And I think rightfully so comedians feel a responsibility to not try that new thing that they just thought about on the flight, you know, mm-hmm. not saying that some won't, they will, you know, there's people that do that and it's great. Um, but I would say as a whole, it's probably, you know, the big kind of difference is that at super serious show was $7 hot tub was five. Mm-hmm. There's no drink minimum. So you can literally go in there, sit down and not spend a single penny at the bar and have your night cost you five dollars, mm. and you might see Hannibal, Pete Holmes, Camille, mm. you know Sarah Silverman. Like you might see anybody who's famous, but you also right. might see somebody you've never heard of before because mm-hmm. it's a lineup show. Maybe they've only been doing comedy for three years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they're also that's so maybe you see Hannibal trying out some new stuff, and maybe it's not awesome. But maybe he's also like, you know, just doing a set before he tapes his special. So maybe it's stellar, you know? Yeah. You don't really know what you're going to get. And so I think that there is something to that. I think comedians feel not less responsibility, but less pressure to make Mm. sure that their stuff is shiny and perfect for an independent Mm -hmm. audience. And it also lets them get some feedback on the jokes. You know, it lets them get... um, Cause it's just in their head before they say it into a microphone, you know? So, yeah. And then it lets them work Hmm. on it. Like I think if you spend enough time in rooms in New York, Los Angeles, probably Chicago, Seattle, any major city where there's a good scene and you see comedians go up time and time again, you're going to hear them do the same material, but you're going to hear it maybe tweaked just slightly here or just slightly there. Like maybe this is moved around. And then if you see it on their special, it's probably very different than the very first time you saw it. So, right. and it's the same joke, but it's just been, it's been put through, you know, a process of working it out to make sure that it's the best version of it. Mm. When you, you talked about uh, living in LA and going to comedy shows uh, for some, some years before you started uh, your show, what were some of the things when you were like, I'm going to produce a show, uh, here's what I want to do uh, that I that I am not seeing around or I, or I don't want to do this that I am seeing around. Uh, how do you think you were kind of responding to your, cause I, I just like the fact that you went from being fan, you had some connection through your partner, but also you, uh, you didn't just go straight. Like I'm a, I'm going to produce a show and it's a money making venture. You're just like, you were also a fan. So what did you want to change or see different? I wanted the shows to start on time. <laughs> All of my that, shows. I really appreciate All of my that. shows start on time, unless there is something super weird or off. But I would say that we have a ninety-nine percent track record of starting our shows on time. I yeah. wanted my shows to be within two hours. Mm. Um. Yeah, I think uh, someone was on. Some I had someone on here. I can't remember who was saying like they were like ninety minutes. If, two is is like the limit and yeah. like if like, it's three no if you think about it like at our shows we open up our doors an hour before so that people can come in and get drinks and mingle that was another mm. thing i really wanted i you know i understand why that's not a thing at like ucb or lots of other places but mm-hmm. i was tired of like standing in the cold 
and I know yeah. it's cold sometimes here in California, but like mm. my memories are this standing in the cold or like sweating in the summer, you know, in mm. a line that you have to like squish together in to not, you know, piss off the sidewalk patrons um, yeah. to catch up with your friends. Like I just wanted a place where like people could come and get a drink and maybe there was for ages there was no there wasn't a lot of food by UCB. A lot of this mm. was based off things that like weren't around UCB and that are now fixed. Well, that's huge because I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what I'm thinking of is standing out on the sidewalk mm-hmm. by UCB Franklin and then like catching up with your friends who you met there, but like one foot from someone eating sushi at that place or yes, something like it's yes. just it's a really weird kind of it's, place it's to stand. weird. And like so you're kind of squished. You kind of really don't have a ton of time to catch up because you're not like getting in that line an hour early. And mm. then, like, when the shows, especially back in the day, when the shows would start, um, UCB was always, like, pretty good about being on time, but there's, like, tons of other shows that are really bad about it. But um, lots of times they would go really long, um, mm. especially if it was, like, the last show of the night. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you're so tired when you get out, and it's late, and I'd still, I'd still had a day job, so you're not, like, hanging out. I mean, I wasn't. I'm sure other people did. But you're not really <laughs> maybe hanging out with your friends afterwards to catch up. And so, like, you hung out with them, but you didn't really hang out with them. So yeah. we wanted, like, with Super Serious Show, we wanted to create a show where people could just show up. You could show up an hour early, and, like, there would be free beer and wine when we first started until we moved to the Virgil. You know, we had free beer and wine. Um, we always had a food truck until we moved to the mm. Virgil. Now there's a taco truck outside the Virgil. Um, but like, there would be music. But we have a DJ. Like, a place for people to, like, hang out and catch up. So you can spend an hour doing that. They can spend a half hour. They can come 15 minutes before the show. Like, whatever you want, you know? Um, mm-hmm. and then the show starts right at eight and you know, it's going to be done before 10 unless something crazy happens. And then it's still 10 o'clock on a Thursday or a Wednesday, you know? And so you're not getting out at like 11, 1130. Yeah. That was really important to me and Joel. Um, it's one of the things we bonded over with Kurt and Kristen was starting on time when they brought hot yeah. stuff out here. Mm-hmm. Um, just very, we, it's happened still with our digital show. We start at eight o'clock every single Monday that we were doing it. Um, never a minute later unless there's something happening. Um, and it's also, it honors the audience. Like I know that some people are like, oh, more people might show up at like 8.15 or, but there's already people Mm. there that showed up. So it honors the audience that's there. And it would always make me so mad. Like even still, if I sit in an audience and the show starts 15, 20, 25 minutes late, I I get Mm. mad. I'm like, I'm, you're just like wasting my time. You're wasting the comedian's time that showed up, you know, to perform. They're, they're working professionals. This is their job. And, you know, you're making them, you know, start late. Maybe they have another set or maybe they're paying a babysitter mm-hmm. to be out to do stand up that night, you know? Right. So there's a lot of considerations like that. And then we just. I really appreciate that because <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a musician, but I have a lot of friends who are musicians. And one of my big things with them is like, they tell me they have a show and I'm like, but when are you really, when is it really going to start? And also just like. So I have like a stereotype in my, in my head of music people and I imagine that just kind of that nightlife, uh, like nighttime entertainment organizing people do not usually have the kind of discipline that you're describing. So I really gravitate towards that. I think that's great. Thanks. Um, com- I think comedians really enjoy it and like that we start on time because then they can plan their lives accordingly. And you can always tell in the before times if people were coming and they hadn't ever been to Hot Tub before and they showed up at like 8, 20, 8, 30 and they were mm. like, oh, when are Kurt and Kristen going to be on? And we're like, you missed them. You know? I yeah. mean, they'll be on introing people in between. But like, sorry, we start right at eight. Yeah. It says eight. It, we mean eight. Mm. Um, 
And then we just always wanted to have a really good variety of um, comedians, both stylistically, racially, sexual orientation-wise, man, female, like just to make sure that the pot of voices is always, you know, a good meld of people. Just mm-hmm. as many, because it's everyone's life experiences are different, and especially, you know, where you come from, who you are, what your perspective is on is on the world, and that adds to the mm-hmm. type of comedy that you have. And so just having, you know, a bunch of white dudes on a show or, you know, a bunch of blah, blah, a bunch of the same people on the show, it just makes everything a little bit more um, stale. So it's nice to yeah, always yeah. have a good mix. And that's not something that I'd, I'm saying I didn't see represented. It was just something that was really important to us personally. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking about, so between the two shows and then particularly like the name of Hot Tub, really for me just being a comedy fan and not having any connection to producing it or being around it at all other than as a fan, uh, it became like a tastemaker type of label to put on things. And I like I've had people I've had comics talk on this show about like they'll say like, you know, getting like a spot on hot tub and it's like it's become a marker of a certain uh, level of what they want to do with their career. Uh, When did that start to come back to you guys? Like when did you start to hear about it in that kind of way? Um. I mean, Hot Sub came to us as a fully formed show with right. Kurt and Kristen already oh, okay. carrying a lot of nor- notoriety. It had been in New York for like seven years mm. or six years before. Um, we've had it the longest now, like California wins. <laughs> um, uh-huh. if, if, if someone's keeping track, just for the record. Um, uh-huh. But, uh, you know, so I think that um, we don't really... I. It's very nice that people look at it that way and it's very sweet but we still try to really approach hot tub as it's just a weekly show it's just a place for people to work mm. out stuff too uh i'm happy that you know it means a lot to the community i'm happy that super serious show means a lot to the community um but it's hard for me to connect emotionally to that just because it's just to me it's just always going to be a weekly show you know like hot yeah. tub is just it's really fun. It's a lot of fun watching comics. It's a lot of fun putting new comics up. It's always a big goal of ours to like try to cycle through as many comedians as possible, especially in the before times. Try to have as much variety and new voices while still having on our old favorites. Um, mm. But I don't ever want anyone to take the show too seriously. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a space that's built to work out material. And um, mm. and Kurt and Kristen often joke that they're the only people that try out new material at that show now. But yeah. Um, and I get it, you know, I understand, I understand, and I understand, like, it's a great place to make a tape, and we try to always accommodate that in the before times, um, but I just, I always want it to just be a place where it's just a weekly show, it's meant to be as little pressure on talent as possible, like, just to go out and have fun, so I don't mm-hmm. ever want to, like, feed into the idea that it has notoriety to it, it's just a weekly comedy show. Mm. For you as a comedy fan, though, maybe this is kind of vulnerable, but who were who were some people that came through where you then were like, "Whoa, this is like for either show." I guess maybe I'm th- maybe maybe more cons- or thinking about super serious because that's more of uh, not like hot tub where it was sort of established that and then you took it over. But when were you like, "Whoa, those are some big people to come through and be on the show that I'm creating." 
I don't know. I was a photo producer for eight years leading up to it. And I worked with lots of, you know, famous people. Uh, mm-hmm. And my partner was a personal assistant for many years to a celebrity. And I just don't think that that's, as a comedy fan, I don't think that that's how I approached my comedy watching. Yeah. It wasn't so much about the comedian or their fame level or their... Um, but you just you liked the material, like yeah. you were like, I saw something special when I saw really good material. Yeah, like I mean, I was really excited when we were still doing Laugh Factory. I was so excited to put the Birthday Boys on a show. Mm. It was before, way before they were famous, or like <laughs> I mean, they were doing their show at UCB, but they weren't like they hadn't made a TV show yet. It's you know, years mm. before that, and they immediately took off their pants, and it made me so very happy. Uh, it was very we did a very cool thing within our first year where we had Weird Al work with Kate Micucci and Ricky from Garfunkel and Oates um, Mm. because we Al wanted to do the show but we couldn't afford his band and so we Mm. suggested that we could provide a band yeah (laughs) Uh and that was fun because that was not just like cool to have and work with Al but it was also really cool that he would collaborate and work with Kate and Ricky. And then Mm -hmm. that was a really cool experience for them. And it was really nice that they all did that. They like took time, got together beforehand, practiced stuff, had a whole thing, you know? And so that was just really special that somebody would take that energy to do something for our show. So maybe that's a better idea. Mm -hmm. And that was also like a really fun thing to know is coming for the audience. Like, Uh uh-huh. To like yeah, wait I, I, to I, wait and watch their reactions to it, you know, to like kind of yeah. like sit and wait, like almost like a, you know, like a predator or something like for your prey, but you know, for fun, something fun. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes on like some other shows I can see when like there's sort of something going on on a sort of backstage area and suddenly like that side area is full of everybody that was in the green room, like standing out and you're like, okay, something, something big is about to happen. Uh, so that's like a special fun kind of energy yeah. I think you located there. They did like a cool thing where um, Kate and Riggy had like just in the month before um, and nobody thought that it was weird that they were back on the show, <laughs> but they came out mm-hmm. and started playing a song and then Al came out like halfway through and um, it was very cool because it was like a wave of recognition through the audience mm-hmm. that I don't think I've ever really experienced since, but it was like, oh, oh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly the like the applause when someone's announced is sort of a wave and much bigger or something. Yeah. 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 It was very fun. And that's a really fun moment that we got to do. Um, that was very like unique to the show, I think so. Well, I have a set of questions I ask every guest on okay. this show about stand-up uh, fandom. It's not a quiz, okay. but but I will try my maybe best. has that energy. Maybe has that energy to it. Okay. What's uh? What is your earliest memory of liking stand-up? Probably one of Janine Garofalo's early specials. Hmm. How did it like come to you? And I imagine like H were those HBO specials? Yeah, that and like probably Mary Tyler Moore. We didn't get to mm. watch like a lot of stuff at home. Like we didn't have cable for ages. And so I remember watching Nick at Night when I was younger with Dick Van Dyke yeah. and Mary Tyler Moore. 
and I loved Mary Tyler Moore a lot. And I've recently, during the pandemic, have rewatched a lot of it. Um, and it's still very silly. <laughs> um, uh, and then I don't have a very strong memory of, I think I had seen Janine Garofalo in a movie and then her mm-hmm. HBO special was on. So I must've been in like maybe middle school. Um, mm. and I don't, you're not from LA. No, I'm from Indiana. Uh, okay. I grew up in Indiana. Um, and so I have like a memory of watching her special, but I couldn't tell you like what the content of it was, mm. but I have a memory of like watching it and liking it. Uh huh. So. Was it, I mean, for me, it's like, I, I liked it, I liked stand up and had located it more to like comics that I like and not like things passed to me from my parents or something starting in like middle school and high school. But then I really didn't watch a lot of it live. Uh, I lived, I grew up in Wisconsin. Um, but I saw so much more of it, obviously when I moved to Los Angeles, when did you start What did you have a similar thing where you saw more live stand up once you moved to Los Angeles? Oh, for sure. I, I don't, it? I don't think, uh, I mean, I grew up in Indiana, but then I went to boarding school, um, in the mountains of California. And then mm. I went to college in Santa Barbara. Um, and mm-hmm. so it wasn't until we moved to LA that we started going out to see comedy. Um, I think my other probably really strong memory to stand up would be, um, David Cross's shut up, you fucking baby album, uh, mm. which, was maybe the only thing that got me through the early Bush years. Um, Uh (laughs) And uh, I could still, we listened to some of it early in the pandemic, like in March or April. I'll creepily enough, still too much of it holds completely true. Um, Uh (laughs) And um, we would quote so many things from it, not like to each other, but we would use turns of phrases that he used, you know, like, like eat your cookie or, you know, uh-huh. uh, don't tell Canada. Like it's like very small <laughs> things that he would say a lot in the album mm. that we, me and Joel or like friends found personally funny. But I listened to that album so many times just because I think mm. I really felt connected to it. So. Yeah. What do you think is the best place to see stand up? What were some of your favorite, like the shows you produced excluded? What were some of your favorite, um, <laughs> Uh, holy rooms. fuck was always really great because Dave always brought a lot of energy to it. Um, uh, hang on. There's so many that don't exist anymore. Um, UCB Franklin well, is like a perfect venue. I don't necessarily agree with how UCB is run. Um, hmm. Predominantly because I believe in paying comedians something, even if it's something very small um, mm-hmm. for their time. But um, the room itself is very great. Um, yeah. And it's no surprise to me. It's sad to lose UCB Sunset. Of course, it's always sad to lose a comedy venue. But the room was not, didn't carry the same energy, you know, based mm-hmm. on lots of things. Um, house party shows are always really fun. I always like that kind of DIY spirit. Um mm. You know, Steve Hernandez's show out in Covina is a blast. Um, mm. It the, the community of audience members that he built there uh, and their dedication to that show to Chatterbox is just really lovely. And mm-hmm. it really brings a lot of different kind of energy to the space and to, you know, um, to the show. Um, yeah, you've like I've heard you say a couple times now. You've isolated sort of like there's community which makes a show special, and also 
uh, the space. What kind of space? What do you think's needed in a space to make it? I'm not special? a huge look. Super Serious Show started in like a giant photo studio with like 25 foot ceilings and like <laughs> hard walls. And I am not uh-huh. a like has to be low. Ce- I'm not a Todd Glass. It has to be low ceiling, like perfect lighting, uh-huh. like da da. I think you need a stage. I think you need mm. a light, a brighter light on your comedian than is on your audience because it will draw their attention to it. I think you need mm. good sound so people can hear what is being said. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you need an, an audience. But I think for the venue itself, yes, is a perfect like wraparound stage where like you're really close. Ideal, of course. But yeah. it doesn't have to be that like it's not just the space. I think it's it's everything that goes into a show. It's the producers who produce it and the energy that they bring to it and the importance that they put into the show because that's reflected in the type of show it is and how it's run. And then it's the audience and like they bring a lot to it. Like they bring a lot of energy and they bring a lot of like how the room feels and how the comedians feel in the room and then how they feel in the room when they're on stage dictates the kind of comedy that they'll do and like how safe they feel to take risks and like what they feel safe to talk about because, oh, you feel like a really nice audience. So maybe I'll try this thing that I've been kicking around in my head for two days, you know, or or you seem kind of like a quiet audience. So maybe, you know, I'll do some like louder stuff that involves more body movement, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, it all varies, you know, like the lyric um, is a great little space because it's really close and like intimate and, Mm -hmm. but it's only 80 people. So like when you want to expand past that, you know, it's, it's, it can be Mm -hmm. hard, you know? And, um, but I, I, there's lots of great spaces. Like you, if you really work at it, you can make any space work for comedy. But you mm-hmm. have to bring something to the table. You can't just mm. show up to a space. You go back to the best space in the world and have a shitty show. Yeah. It's not the venue mm. that makes the show great. It's the comedians. Mm-hmm. It's the audience. It's the people behind the show. It's the producers, the people who care. Mm. So you're. it's a tough question because uh, you are economically interested in this not being able to replace the experience but what have your thoughts been about stuff going online but also great that you know you like you oh, I have a show online yeah right um it's been interesting I think that um I think that we'll probably try to find a way to keep something because we have a patreon now for hot tub mm. which is my first patreon I've ever been part of and it's definitely you know different work than I'm used to. Um, But we have really lovely people as part of our Patreon and they're so Mm -hmm. kind and generous um, and into the show. And it's nice. It's really nice. It's nice. It's nice that people care, you know? Um, So that's a nice positive. Uh, We wouldn't be able to do um, the show without hold the phone, which kind of helps run it. Like it takes Mm -hmm. it from the zoom room to the show. And so that's really special and and a big part of it. Um, I don't think that it will ever replace live comedy, and I've never been afraid of that. Um, That would be like being afraid that like once the special is aired on HBO, like nobody would go watch you record it or something. Like the energy, like you just can't replace the energy of a live room. You can't replace being there. You just can't. Mm -hmm. Like it's special. But I think that it's done a really good job as a stopgap. And it's Mm -hmm. surprisingly 
fun. Yeah. I still have fun doing the shows. I see all my friends in tiny little boxes for like an hour. Mm. We keep the show short. Our shows now are like an hour, maybe mm. an hour and 15. Everyone's sets are like around five minutes. Um, we have a small in Zoom audience for them. Yep. Um, but uh that helps, I think, not expecting. And it doesn't need to be the same, right? So, like, it's not – some people have managed to do it similar to stand-up where they have more of their normal proper jokes. But lots of people have shifted to maybe more of, a, like, a show-and-tell kind of thing or more of a confessional-style material. Yeah. Um, I think that early in the pandemic, maybe people felt the pressure to perform in the same capacity. But I think mm-hmm. that it's allowed people to explore different – voices it's allowed people to keep an outlet still I don't think that it's perfect and it's you know but it's also a lot of people it's been fun to see people be like oh I haven't seen hot tub in eight years since it left New York and now I can watch it again so that's also mm-hmm. really fun you know so there's a lot of pluses and minuses to it it's not the same I no surprise miss live comedy very much yeah I um I ask performers, so I ask comics that are on here, uh, what type of show or location feels like an away game and what kind of place feels like a home game for them. Uh, for you, so when I after I got your book uh, and then I followed you on social media, you also do like wedding photography, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, so does that question kind of apply then for you? I'm trying to think of like, as a photographer, what are some places that feel like a home game and what kind of places feel or situations feel like an away game? What kind of gigs? I guess like a home game would be like at a studio, like doing more of a commercial shoot where you have assistance and a budget for lighting and like you have all of the comforts that a photo shoot can offer you. So it's easier to create, you know, the key art for your Netflix special, you know, for so-and-so because it's just easier because you have like a team of three people helping you set up lights and, you know, you're Mm -hmm. having a nice catered lunch and, you know, you have a whole team to get your talent ready. And, and that's so cozy and cush. Um, And I love those shoots because you can do really cool things that you can't do just with natural light or outside. Um, Mm Or like shooting maybe in any wedding venue I've shot in at least once, like because mm-hmm. you know a lot about the venue. You, like you learn, like anything, you learn a lot the first time you do anything, and that means shooting in a new spot or producing in a new spot, you know. And so mm-hmm. the second time you do it, you're it's already more of a home game the second time you do it. So, like for instance, I shoot a lot of weddings at like Smog Shop or. Um, and the venues around Los Angeles. And so I kind of know like good spots to shoot people in or like little cutaways or like things that I enjoy in that venue. Um, mm. And so when I literally travel, which I do a lot for weddings or for work, if we're doing like a commercial shoot on location, there's of course location scouts um, with your client. And then if I'm doing, excuse me, a wedding out of town at a venue I've never been at before, I will typically try to go um at the same time as like the ceremony or portraits are happening Mm -hmm. so that I can see the light so that I'm when I'm scouting I'm looking for locations to take photos in I'm looking in the same lighting that I'm going to be working in as close to it as possible Mm -hmm. I mean there's clouds and things that can happen but um 
At the risk yeah. of it being stressful, have you obviously weddings are in the way that they looked are on hold, but have you been able to still do photography through the pandemic? Obviously not in the same amount or to the degree, but some, you have some people getting photography. Some I've had a jobs. couple like uh, weddings that shifted from weddings to elopements. Uh, uh-huh. To any listener who's recently engaged looking for an elopement photographer, you know, let me know. Yeah, what's your, <laughs> give your uh, give your social media. Oh, every handle. everything I, the is photos oh. that Mandy shows are great. So all my social media handles are Mandy Photo, and it's just Mandy with two E's, P H O T O. But uh, some, so some, so some have shifted. I've done like two really small weddings. I've done a couple engagement shoots. Uh, I did, I created like an outdoor studio in my car park and did like a portrait Mm. shoot, which was really fun. Um, I've done some family photo shoots outside. It's been real slim. It's been real slim. Uh, yeah, I miss working. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how else to put that. I just miss working. (laughs) Right. I mean, the I'm sam- busy doing the- things, but like I miss shooting and like working and uh-huh. being and a bar with too many people and, you know, at a wedding with 300 people or whatever. So I miss mm-hmm. it all. Right. It seemed like you kind of uh, became like from seeing your examples, you're sharing them as a like advertising kind of your work as a photographer at weddings, but they're almost all like comics I recognize sometimes. So I'm like, there's a big uh, overlap you've become in like my a world. Comic, yeah. The comic wedding uh, photographer. Yeah. I haven't shot everyone's, but it's a big overlap. Yeah. It's really nice. Um, it's, it's lovely to, to be able to shoot a wedding of people that you've known for ages that you love and respect uh, it's nice to do that. And people always ask, like, would you rather be a guest or an, and it's always going to be a photographer. Um, I'd mm. much rather shoot your wedding. Uh, I'm a producer mm-hmm. and a photographer who does weddings. So at a wedding, I'm just a broken person if I can't work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just like, what do, what do we do? We just sit here and eat. And then what? Uh-huh. <laughs> like, it's just to me, it's just uh, I'd ra- much rather be working. But um, because then you also are with your clients all day. So you're with your friends the whole time. And it's really lovely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're sharing in all of these special moments and you're capturing all these special moments of their day. And you get to see them way more. You get to see them as like ten, for like 10 minutes or 20 minutes as a guest. But like as a photographer, you're with them all day. Um, and it's really special and lovely. And it's been a nice overlap between the worlds. It's been nice to shoot their weddings it's been nice to shoot their key art for their netflix specials it's you know it's it's nice that it all gets to blend together into my world and it's also nice that it's not weird for anybody that i do all of it so Mm -hmm. because for ages people are like oh you can only do this or you can only do that or whatever and it's no i don't want to just do one thing why Mm -hmm. right uh what so I start with a bad one to then get to a good one. Mm. But what is your worst memory related to stand up? I also have people go like, well, it's so much easier the, for performers because they just pick a performance. I'm trying to think of a show that was really bad. They all have like a bomb story. Yeah. So like, uh, kind of curious if you just had like a, if you had a super serious show that just really didn't go well, <laughs> maybe not naming names, but. You know, I think I would have to say, if I'm going to look at it as a collection of my career producing, uh-huh. um, my most stressful thing that I had to do, and I was hired to do it, 
was at South by Southwest, mm. you know, when we all knew he was a creepy person, but oh, before no. the newest things came out or whatever, the new wave of it, before Hannibal talked about it on stage, uh, mm. we had to do a show with Bill Cosby. And mm. it was very stressful leading up to it. Mm-hmm. Like during his time in Austin, like in the days preceding, and while at the venue, and all of it was not enjoyable. Right. It happened, and it was successful in the fact that he was on stage, and there was an audience, and like the, the, the things happened, but it was something that was not fun and or enjoyable on any level for myself personally. Um, yeah. And so maybe that's the worst um, mm-hmm. experience I've had. I mean, I've had comedians cancel or like run late, but ultimately, again, for like super serious or hot tub, it's frustrating, but like it's not the end of the world. Um, mm-hmm. But but it was it probably took years off my life. The amount of stress that that show entailed, mm-hmm. I would say, as a whole. So, yeah, because it, it we've established you want to start on time. It seems like you appreciate a uh a schedule uh all of those things are like minor little stresses that everybody would love to go back to but that memory that you shared there is like maybe the more extreme like you're locked into a work situation uh and all of that's coming out and you kind of like the narrative is out of your control about how it's going about it so yeah that, that's a unique story i've heard uh compared to yeah it just uh, just i would say said. like as a whole like a lot of it was above my pay grade and i didn't have a lot of say but um, as a whole, it was just maybe my most unpleasant experience in producing comedy by far. Um, mm. And something that if that had been earlier in my career, maybe um, it, you know, it, it would have probably f- changed my perspective on things more. But, mm-hmm. you know, having been kind of deep into it and a, a producer for, you know, over a decade at that point of just various things. So dealing with various celebrities who are not always nice or lovely people um, who can often be torturous and stress you out on a level that is unacceptable um, Mm. was similar to one of those experiences I had had in photo producing who I also would love to never work with that person again. Um, Mm. But I would have to get paid so much money to have to go through a stressful situation like that again because it just is really you lose nights of sleep like you lose yourself mm-hmm. you know and it's not it's not really worth it by any right. by any stretch really so mm. so then palate cleanser <laughs> what is your best memory related to stand up i mean i don't have one specific i mean the al yankovic story i shared earlier is pretty fun um mm. i would say really and this is gonna sound maybe cheesy but like any night like there are nights where everything clicks in a show and everything is just perfect and fun and great and sparkly around the edges. Mm. Um, It's probably hard to describe. And as an audience member, you might not even know because you don't know maybe the difference, but everything is just like a real fun blast. Yeah. Um, and it's my, and that doesn't mean that like everything went perfect that night, you know, and that's fine. But like, it's just like one of those nights where you're just like, ah, oh, that was like a good show. Like just having like a good show, 
like as a producer where you walk away and you're just like, that was like a great show. It was a good audience. Like the performers were great. Like it's just everyone had fun. Like the performers had fun. The audience had fun. We had fun. You know, it was great to watch those acts. Like just like those nights are awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we as uh, the pure audience member not involved, uh, we all definitely miss it. And like it has to come back. I think people have been standing up in front of crowds to tell them something either funny or salacious or political or otherwise. Uh, I'm a historian. I can tell you it's been going on a long time. Yeah. So there is no um, world where comedy doesn't come back. I mean, it's just right. it's a uh, it's a uh, like cockroaches it's like we're never mm. comedy's never going away fully we're the i think jonah called us in his interview like the ugly stepchild of entertainment but we'll always come back like we'll always find a place to keep telling jokes and to keep doing comedy because it's ultimately enjoyable and people like it so mm. yeah and then in the meantime with extra time to read and do other things uh you should definitely pick up mandy's book called super serious an oral history of los angeles independent stand-up comedy uh Amazing coffee table book, amazing read as an oral history of uh, L.A.'s comedy scene. Uh, I really enjoyed it. You're, and then it coming out and reading it was one of the things that made me like, all right, I got to get off my butt and start this podcast. So I'm very thankful that you oh, that's so nice to uh, hear. put the book out. And I just want to add to that kind of uh, community of fans and things that you have described uh, in the book and then on this episode. So thank you so much. How can we... I have the book. Uh, how can other people get the book um, in the best way that gets you money? It's and- all. It all kind of goes to the same pot, thankfully. So um, mm. don't feel horrible if you get it from a from an evil billionaire. That's fine. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, that's your decision, but it's fine. Mm. If you want to support independent bookstores, sh- you can go to um, bookshop. Maybe, yeah, bookshop.org. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can good. get it there. Uh, mm. um, I don't sell them directly cause it's yeah. complicated with shipping and things. Um, but you know, it all kind of piles into a giant thing. And if I sell enough copies, then I get a percentage. So just buying a copy is great, but mostly just buying a copy for you to enjoy is more important. So, and to share mm. with friends or to give away or, you know, to use as a paperweight, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> I will, I will share the link to bookshop.org, uh, in other ways, uh, you can also find it in all the other places where it's easy to get things and then you have to wonder about the ethics of it, but you can figure that out yourself. <laughs> or wherever <And> books are sold. <laughs> wherever books are sold. Um, yeah, anything else you want to plug? Uh, you have the the Twitch show for Hot Tub. Yeah, so we're on uh, Hot Tubs every Monday at 8 p.m. Pacific at Hold the Phone on Twitch. And um, I'm reading Sarah Schaefer's book, Grand, right now, and I think it's fantastic. So if you, I'm about halfway through it. It's great. Yeah. It's um, a very quick read. It's so engaging. So I would say that if you're looking for a companion piece to Super Serious, mm. I would recommend Grand. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much for being on the Thanks show. Thanks for having me. It was so lovely. Thank you for listening to Don't Sit in the Front. Please rate and subscribe and leave me a review. You can follow the show on Twitter with the handle don't underscore sit or don't sit in the front, all one word, on Instagram. Our music is composed by Chris Helking, and our cover art is provided by Memory Bloom Studio. Thank you so much for listening, and just remember to always punch up and keep swinging.